We looked at First Corinthians last year, and we will uh, say a little bit about Paul's relationship to the church at Corinth. We know from the book of Acts that on Paul's second journey, he probably came to Corinth by himself, and then shortly thereafter was joined by Silas and Timothy. So they came down from Macedonia. And he had some opposition early on, and, you know, a lot of places when Paul started being persecuted, he went to the next city. A lot of times he was kind of chased out of town. But in the case of Corinth, the Lord told him in a dream at night to stay there. He had a lot of people in that city, and Paul ended up staying in Corinth a year and a half, which seemed to have been a lot longer than he stayed most places. And so he gave a lot of attention to the closeness to the Corinthians. Then, apparently, at some point, he wrote a letter that we don't have, because he makes reference to that in 1 Corinthians, when he talks about having written about uh, not associating with immoral people. He clarifies that he meant immoral Christians, not immoral people of the world. said if you had to separate from them, you'd have to leave the world. Um, and then he, he finishes, you know, he's, he's gone to finish his second trip, he's on his third trip, and on that third missionary journey he spends a lot of time in Ephesus, probably two or three years in Ephesus. And apparently from there he writes what we have in First Corinthians. And then the rest of it is a little sketchy, but when you read Second Corinthians, it's obvious that Paul has made already two visits to Corinth. So one beyond the one he made in Acts 18 when he spent a year and a half there. I'm figuring sometime while he was at Ephesus, he made what may have been somewhat of an emergency visit to Corinth. It also appears to me, this is uh, something that's debated, but it appears to me that Paul wrote another letter that he sent by Titus We'll see a lot of reasons to think that over the course of studying 2 Corinthians. But I think he wrote another letter that he sent by Titus, a very difficult, painful letter. And uh, so that was that was near the uh, end of his time in Ephesus, I'm gathering. Sometimes we call that, or I do, one and a half Corinthians. So he wrote half Corinthians, and first Corinthians, and one and a half, and then second Corinthians is what he writes when he was hoping to find Titus. Titus had, I think, delivered one and a half Corinthians to Corinth and spent some time with the brethren. And it looks to me like Paul and Titus had agreed that they'd meet up in Troas, Paul leaving from Ephesus and Titus leaving from Corinth. But when Paul gets to Troas, he can't find Titus. And he's concerned about him. He's concerned about the Corinthians. And so his concern for all of that motivated him to push forward. And he went on into Macedonia, hunting Titus. I think he writes that Corinthians right after he found Titus and was so relieved to hear relatively good news about the brethren, about their relationship with Paul, and about how they had received that letter. I think that was a great encouragement to Paul. And in a very emotional moment, he writes Second Corinthians. Now, I love Second Corinthians. I, for a long time, really probably for five or six years at least, I have considered Second Corinthians to be my favorite Bible book. So that wasn't just true when I studied it this time to present this in Brazil and here. But one of the things I love about Second Corinthians is it's probably more than any other book that Paul wrote. He opens his heart up. You know, he really, you can really see Paul. Not just what he did, what he said, but who he was. How he felt. And uh, it's a more emotional book. And, and for that reason, it may be more difficult. You know, when you're emotional and you're writing from an emotional perspective, sometimes, you know, the, the logic is not the same. You're writing kind of as, as your, you know, as your emotions are carrying you. And so I think St. Corinthians is a challenge to follow, but it's really encouraging and amazing. When you think about all the passages throughout Paul's writings in which he encouraged brethren to follow him. There's several of those. He does that in a couple of times in the Thessalonian letters. He does that a couple of times in 1 Corinthians. He does that a couple of times in Philippians. He presents himself as a model, as an example. And, and I, I really think 
that we need to learn to feel what Paul felt, to have the heart that Paul had. That one reason Paul opens up like he does is to present a model of how a Christian really ought to be, how a disciple is in his heart, in his character, and, and not just what he does externally. Any thoughts or comments before we plunge in? That's my introduction. I don't have much introduction. So. Oh, I would somebody read the first two verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the church of God that is at home, all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so Paul, as he starts every letter, starts with his own name. And uh, they always did that, because when you're reading a scroll, you don't want to have to unravel it all to find out who wrote it. Uh, you put your own name first, and he writes as an apostle of Christ. All the four of the 13 letters he writes, he mentions in the introduction he was an apostle. This shows his authority for writing. His authority has been called into question in Corinth, so that may be a secondary reason. But really, when he appeals to his apostleship, he's appealing to the fact that he has credentials from the Lord to write this. And he says that he was an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He uh, he didn't uh, pursue the office. He didn't campaign for it. You know, this was not some uh, career track hack that he was on. It was God that, that made him an apostle. And I might suggest that was in distinction to the super apostles that he will mention later on in Corinthians. As I Corinthians. And uh, sending the letter with Paul was Timothy, who he does not say apostle, but our brother. I believe that Timothy was co-sender, not co-author. You can debate that if you want to. But but it seems to me like he didn't actually write for Paul as much as he sent it. He endorsed it. And of course, Timothy has a connection with Corinth since he came down and joined Paul for probably much of the time that he was at Corinth. He writes to the Church of God, which is at Corinth. He emphasizes their relationship with the Lord. He calls them saints, he says, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. Um, so, you know, to call them God's church and to call them saints really gives them a standard to live up to. You know, uh, Paul has, has high expectations for these brethren. And the fact that he mentions all the saints who are throughout Achaia shows that the Corinthians are not the only Christians in that province. They tended to be sort of arrogant and self-sufficient. And this is a subtle point that the world doesn't revolve around them. You see that several times in 1 Corinthians. The idea that Paul spoke the same thing in every church and there was sort of a pattern that all the churches followed. So it was kind of a unity of brethren, no matter where they were. Uh, they're not the whole church of God, not even in the province of Achaia. We don't know for sure whether there were other churches in Achaia, probably sin free at least, where uh, Phoebe was from, maybe Athens, and who knows where else. And uh, so, and, and Paul knows that what he's writing then, particularly to the church of Corinth, but really, he writes for all the brethren in Achaia, for all the brethren everywhere. What, what Paul taught one place, he taught every place. That's what he said in 1 Corinthians 4, uh, verse 17. And so he wishes for them, or prays for them, to have grace and peace. Grace is what he always starts with. It's always grace and peace, not peace and grace. Because grace is the foundation of the peace we have with God. From God and from Jesus, which is an indication that he sees Jesus as deity. You might think of Paul constantly wishing grace and peace to the brethren in connection with that priestly blessing back in number six. I suspect that there's some connection there. And most of his letters end with peace and grace in the last few verses, which is kind of interesting how Paul puts those things together. All right, thoughts or comments on those first two verses? Okay. All right, uh, would somebody read uh, three, let's do three through eleven. Father of mercy and God 
So he mentions God, Father, Father, God. And he's the God of all comfort. Paul has just received amazing comfort when he encountered Titus. And he sees that God is the source of that. All comfort comes from God. And throughout the book, we're going to see reasons or ways in which God comforted Paul. But, but God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. So every time we are blessed, we praise and thank God. He is the source of that. He says in verse 4, who comforts us in all our affliction. We experience God's grace in our life most strongly in the most difficult situations. You know, God does not promise to exempt us from trouble. He promises to comfort us and be with us in our trouble. Did he keep Daniel out of the lion's den? But he was with Daniel in the lion's den. You know, so God is, is with us and blessing us in the midst of our troubles. There's a, there's a comfort from God that matches every suffering. So he comforts us in all our afflictions. But what Paul really focuses on here are the reasons for the affliction of the comfort. And what he says is, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, he's, he's saying that he received comfort so that he could comfort. It's, it's almost impossible to give comfort if you've never received it. We learn the art of consoling in the school of suffering. When we go through hard things and God comforts us in those things, then, then that encourages us and that strengthens us. And that helps us be able to comfort others. It qualifies us. Now, it's hard to want to go through difficulties so we're qualified to be a comforter, right? You know, it would be easier if we just didn't have to go through that. But Paul wants to serve his brethren. So he's thankful for the sufferings and for the comfort that has now qualified him to comfort others. Paul doesn't, oh, God, God, God does not comfort us. God does not comfort us. So much to make us comfortable as he does to make us comforters. Right? You know, the, the point of, of God doing this, and when Paul looks at it at his experiences, he saw them in terms of how they would help other people. When, when he thought about going through hard times and being comforted, he thought, now I can comfort others. This is giving me the ability and the experience that will help me be a comfort and strength to other people. 
because Paul looked at everything in terms of how they would help others. Paul gives what he received. Paul was like a relay station. He received the comfort and he passes it on. That was his concept with that. Do you remember that song, There is a Sea Which Day by Day? And, and the idea of that song is uh, that, you know, you've got the, the Sea of Galilee, and, and, and the Sea of Galilee receives and, and gives. It receives and then passes on uh, what it receives. And, and then there's the Dead Sea, whose name describes it. And it just receives, but there's no outlet. It doesn't give. And, and the song and the third verse asks the question, which will be for you and me, who God's good gifts receive? Shall we receive for self alone, or receive to give again? I mean, the reason God blesses us is so we can bless. God gives us a surplus of comfort in our affliction so they can overflow to help others. And it's so amazing. You, it's, it's hard to come up with anybody in the Bible who suffered much more than Paul did, but he thinks of those things and he rejoices in the opportunity to use them to comfort and strengthen his brethren. That's how we ought to think about that. We're so often so self-absorbed. You know, we think about ourselves. Poor me! Look what I'm going through! Instead of thinking about, wow, now I'll know how to comfort somebody who loses a relative. Now I'll know how to comfort somebody who's being persecuted. Now I'll know how to comfort somebody when they lose their job. Now I'll know how to comfort somebody when they're slandered and lied about and so forth and so on. Now I'll know how to comfort somebody when they have a terrible illness. You know, now I'll know how to comfort somebody when they experience a crushing disappointment in their life. Paul went through a lot, but praise God, he used it to help others and to comfort them. He says, we share in the sufferings of Christ. That's really what he's saying in verse 5. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. So we share in Christ's sufferings, we share in his comfort. It's clear that Paul did not live some kind of detached, untroubled life. I mean, there were a lot of sufferings that Paul faced in the hostile world he was in. And it was not easy. But it's a part of what we do for the Lord. And it's a part of what we do for others. He says in verse 6, If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it's for your comfort. You know, so he says, As your shares of our suffering, so your shares of our comfort. So, so Paul didn't have this, you know, individualist mentality. There's a lot of, of kind of a spirit among us sometimes of wanting independence of wanting to feel like, you know I want to be a strong Christian and not have to depend on my brother I want to just be able to do this as a lone ranger if I was really a strong Christian, I wouldn't need anybody else I'd just do this myself no, that is not how God designed Christianity he did not design this for me to do it on my own the point of having many members in the body is that other members need me and I need them. And I can't say, hey, I got it made. I don't need any other members of the body. That's not true. And I must never think that way. I must always see myself as dependent because I truly am. So we see the things we go through as connected with what we can do for others. It's all for them. Paul suffered and was comforted so that he could bless his brethren when they went through those things. Isn't that encouraging? You just think about the, the values and the treasures that Paul sees in his sufferings. And number one, an opportunity to comfort others. Thoughts and comments, comments on that. So far. Yes.
Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Times of suffering bring brethren together, and they help us turn to the Lord and be dependent on Him. And if everything's always going smoothly, we tend not to sense our need for the Lord and each other. That's a good point. Interesting thought, yeah. Melissa was pointing out in verse 4 that he comforts us in all our afflictions. So we'll be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. And the idea is maybe we haven't been comforted in exactly the same affliction. But the fact that we've been comforted in all ours qualifies us to be able to help them in whatever their affliction is. I think there's a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of going to affliction of whatever kind that helps me understand affliction and helps me understand the comfort God gives. So it may not be identical, but it's similar enough that it helps me learn better how to comfort. And probably the more affliction I go through, the more I'll understand and be qualified to comfort. But yes, we can certainly reach out and help even when we haven't gone through exactly the same thing. Other thoughts? Yes, Eric. That's possible. I, I don't know, but they were kind of triumphalist, the false teachers were in their mentality, so maybe so. I think also, this is what Paul felt right there. When Titus came and gave that report, it was like, whoa, what a comfort. But he doesn't think what a comfort, he thinks what a comforting God that is comforting us in all our afflictions. So it's very common for Paul to immediately go from whatever God blesses him with to the blesser. And so I think it makes sense that he starts out talking about God's comfort. That's what he's feeling right now. Right. So he made the point that comfort is largely internal, and it comes from God, and therefore as we receive comfort from God, God is imprinting himself on us, and it's a way of drawing closer to God and being more molded according to his image. Good point. Other thoughts? Brett. Yeah, good point. Sufferers of Christ, he suffered and therefore he's able to comfort us all. yesterday, but didn't reach out for help. And he said, you know, I just feel like I want to do this on my own. And isn't that what we think of? And we talked about how there's a sense in which our weakness 
is a blessing to us when it causes us to turn to the Lord and trust in Him, and it causes us to turn to our brethren and depend on them. Which is kind of the Paul, point Paul will make in Second Corinthians 12, that, you know, he is strong when he's weak. Because in our weakness, when we don't have this self-sufficient mentality, then we do turn to one another and the Lord more, and that makes us stronger. So, really, we ought to want opportunities to depend. And Paul had them. Now think about verse 8. He goes on to describe the affliction. He says, we don't want you to be unaware that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. That's pretty much, you know, pretty traumatic. In fact, Paul says, we have the sense of death within ourselves. I think he means by that that he'd already mentally sentenced himself to death. He'd already assumed he was going to die from this. I mean, it's that bad. You know, I don't know if you've been through something where you just assumed, I'm not going to make it. I don't know if this was some persecution. Maybe it was. Maybe he thought that it was gone. You know, they were going to stone him, crucify him. I don't know what he thought. But, but I think he had mentally sensed himself already. Um, and, and, wow. I mean, that's like getting, going to the limit of affliction. Um, and, and, you know, he wants them to understand. He's been there. But why? Why would God let him go that low, be that desperate, be that far at the end of his road? He says, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. You know, we can't trust God until we repudiate self-confidence. And it's hard to get us not to trust in ourselves. And sometimes the only way we'll learn that is from impossible situations. It appears a lot of times that ordinary difficulties aren't enough. When we're facing ordinary difficulties, we still try to face them in our own strength. That sometimes God's got to take us absolutely to the end of our road to cause us to depend on Him. Sometimes we need a good dose of helplessness. We like to be in control. We like to be in command. We like to feel like we've got it all together. I like that. But it's not good for me. It would be better if I felt more my insecurity and sent more my need and my despair because in that, it leads me to depend on God and not myself. You know, and, and so Paul sees this as a blessing. You know, it was bad. It was really, really bad. But, but God did what it took to, to take away his self-confidence and undermine his dependence on his own resources and put him in a situation where only God could rescue him. He had to have God's help. And uh, so he sees these sufferings let him be able to comfort others, and they let him to put, put his trust and confidence in God. The God, as he says, who raises the dead. You know, if, if we serve a God who raises the dead, tell me what situation he can't handle in our life. What, what, what's too big for God? What's too bad for God? What's too hard for God if God's the God who raises the dead? And he says, who delivered us from so great a peril of death? And will deliver us. He sees God as the dead raising God, who is the God who brings us out of the near death experiences that Paul had, had. But it's not just that. He says, He will deliver us, you also join in helping us, verse 11, through your prayers. In times of distress, we ask for prayers of our brethren and we see our dependence on God. And that's really helpful. It's a blessing when we need to turn to others to pray with us and for us. When we need to confess our sins to one another and get them to pray with us and for us. Paul was not a superman who pretended he could do very well on his own with no help from anybody else or from the Lord. He knew he needed the Lord and so he turned to his brethren to pray for him. And we need that. We need to work to God. We need to work together with each other in prayer. You know, we need to see prayer as a way we work to help each other. 
And we need more of that interdependence in praying for each other. You know what we do? We hide all the things we need prayers for. When we're really in trouble, what do we do? And well, on my own, I sure don't want anybody to know. Hide it. Make sure nobody finds out. Make sure we tell someone, we swear them to within an inch of their life, that they never tell a soul. It's not that, you know, we want everybody broadcasting. So it's amazing to me how our biggest trauma is the fact that somebody else might find out something that was true about us. You know, that's like, that's the worst thing that ever happened. We need each other. And hiding and secrecy is hurting us. Trying to present the facade, I've got it together, I'm doing great. I want to make sure everybody thinks I'm fine. So we've got that image up, we've got that veneer, and we, we, you know, we have the name that we're alive, like Sardis did in Revelation chapter 3. We've polished that lampstand, we've got it looking good, but it's not the reality. So Paul turned to his brethren. And, and the result of that was even better. So that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of men. Paul's ultimate concern was not being rescued from danger, but that God be thanked and honored more and more. That's what really would happen. Because they pray for Paul. God delivers Paul through their prayers. And they thank him. And they praise him. And God is glorified. That's the best thing that could happen through his afflictions. It caused him to depend on them. And it caused God to help through their prayers. And them to thank and glorify God. This is not a gospel that revolves around us. The key element in our lives is God's glory and honor and Him being thanked and praised like He ought to be. And that's what made Paul happy about this. He was not so overjoyed that he was delivered as he was that God was honored because of his deliverance. So I see Paul going through these sufferings and four great consequences. He was able to comfort others. He learned to trust and depend on God. He turned to his brethren for help and prayers. And they thanked and glorified God for God's answering their prayers. Those were the wonderful blessings. Comments, thoughts. Good thoughts, aren't they? See a lot of Paul's heart even in that first paragraph. A lot to think about, a lot to meditate on. Very helpful. All right, would somebody read 12 and 14? For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, more abundantly toward you. For we are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you will ever stand understand even to the end as also you have understood us in part that we are your boast as you also are ours in the days of the Lord Jesus. Okay. You can tell here that Paul we might call it a little defensive. You know, he's seeking to um, assert some some things. And, and so his confidence is, the testimony of conscience is that in holiness and godly sincerity. There's a textual question there. Maybe simplicity and godly sincerity. To be the idea of just transparency. That that's how he conducted himself in the world, not in fleshly wisdom. So he's saying, I have been candid, I've been frank and straightforward. I've not somehow schemingly calculated to deceive. Uh, Paul said, what I write to you is just what you read. In other words, I mean what I say and I say what I mean. You know, he's saying, I'm not being deceptive. I'm not talking out of both sides of my mouth. My conscience bears me witness that that I I say what I say with sincerity. Um, So why does he say that? You know, he's saying my writing is not full of loopholes and some hidden agenda. 
You know, I don't write one thing when I mean something else. But why did he say that? And uh, he says that he hopes when Christ appears, they'll be able to be proud of each other. Because they've been honest and straightforward. Because Paul's been transparent. But you wonder why he says that. And, and you start seeing, there's a couple things going on in this letter of 2 Corinthians. We just looked at the good part. The encouragement, the comfort that Paul had received, I think primarily in this context by, by his encounter with Titus. But it wasn't all good. There were people who have come to, to, to Corinth, in my judgment, after Paul left. And they didn't necessarily teach exactly the right stuff. And they were trying to draw the Corinthians to follow them, and not Paul. So they were trying to find things to badmouth Paul about, to discredit him with. And we'll see a number of things that they were trying to use against Paul. And one of them was, you just can't trust what he writes. He writes one thing, but he means something else. He's always got a hidden agenda. Because that's to figure out what he really is trying to say. And, and so that's Paul's beginning to talk about this subject. Now, what's gonna, what he's going to tell about in the next section is he wrote about some travel plans that he changed. And his opponents, they're kind of like uh, politicians do. You know, they seize on some some change their opponent made or something they think discredits their opponent. And they just blast them over. You know, they try to, to sling them up and make them look dishonest, make them look unethical, make them look two-faced. And, and that's what they would do with Paul. He changed his type of life. You know he didn't even mean it. He wrote it, but that's not what he meant to be. You know, he just wrote, 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 wrote whatever was convenient at the time. But it's, it's, you can't trust it. I think that's the kind of thing these false teachers who come in to try to steal the Corinthian flock, I think that's the kind of thing they were saying about Paul. So he introduces this section by saying, hey, my conscience is pure. I've been sincere. I've been straightforward. I've written what I meant. And I've meant what I wrote. Thoughts and comments? Yes. Yeah. Paul was certainly not trying to complicate things, but he was not trying to come up with some kind of like a double meaning phrase to try to mislead them, you know, to try to make it difficult, or to try to kind of, you know, be able to, to technically say the truth or really it was something else. He wasn't like Paul was straightforward. He was transparent. Great, great thing for us, by the way. That's what we need to be. We need to be very sincere. Okay, uh, 15 to 18. So that you could twice receive a blessing. So I was going to like come to Corinth on my way to Macedonia and then come back to Macedonia through you and then go on to Judea. That's what Paul intended. Uh, but he changed his plan. And uh, fitting this in with Acts and with 1 Corinthians 16 is a bit difficult. But perhaps Paul had changed his plans to where instead of coming through Corinth to Macedonia and back through Corinth, 
he had decided to send a letter to the Corinthians, and he went up to Troas and came down through Macedonia to Corinth. So he didn't come when he said he was going to come. He sent the letter with Titus instead. Something like that. I am not confident that I have all that put together. I'm not sure we have quite enough information to be sure. But it's something along that line. And, and, and what the opponents were doing was, was to say, he's shifting, he waffles, you can't count on him, you can't trust him, you can't rely on him. Paul says, was I vacillating when I intended to do this? Do I purpose things according to the flesh? You know, am I the kind of guy who says yes and no in the same breath? You know, and, and you know, we love smearing an approach. We love picking up on any detail and just running with it. And, and I will. American politics right now is a perfect illustration of that. Isn't that absolutely what happens? I mean, wow. Just vilifying the opponent happens on all sides and, and figuring out what can you use? What can you twist? What did they say in some weak moment, you know, years ago, that you could come back and club them over the head with and exaggerate and make them look worse than they really are? And, and that's exactly what the opponents were trying to do with Paul. I mean, boy, they, they found the chink in his armor. He changed his travel plan. Man, you can't trust him. You know you can't trust him. And, uh, you know, Paul says, do you, do you really think that I'm making my plan in some kind of a worldly, self-seeking way? You know, according to, to the mood of the moment. Um, you know, and he says, as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. He takes an oath before God. I mean, that's not something Paul does like. When he calls, when he says, but as God is faithful, he's really swearing to God. And he wouldn't do that if this wasn't an important subject and if he didn't firmly believe that his word was absolutely sincere. It was not yes and no. You know, he needed to authenticate his sincerity as strongly as possible he did. He was straightforward. He said what he meant, he meant what he said. That was Paul. Thoughts and comments. interesting that the great argument that the opponents of Paul have against him is an exact detail and an itinerary of a trip that he was going to take. You know, that's the thing that they focus in on. You can't trust Paul. Look at his travel plans. Yeah, it, it, it is. It's kind of like, uh, remember when the Pharisees criticized Jesus because of not washing their hands before they ate? You're thinking, that's the worst thing you can come up with. You know, wow. And so Paul changes his travel plans and decides to only visit once, not twice. And that's the terrible evil they found in Paul. You're right. It does kind of show you they were hurting for material that they spread at Paul with. And, uh, but, but you know it doesn't much matter. They found what they could and they were going to town with this. So, so much so that in the first chapter of this letter, Paul's trying to defend himself. And he's going to, it's bleeding over in the second chapter. He's going to deal with some things. And he's finally, at the end of this, by the, by the first paragraph of chapter 2, we're going to find out why he changed his plan. And, uh, but first he's, he's dealing with some things. He's, he's dealing with the principle and, and some other things before he finally comes down to explain, here's why I shifted my plan. And when you find out the reason, it's even more ridiculous that they're attacking him like this. Other thoughts? Okay, 18, 19 to uh, 22.
So this is a bit of a challenging section, uh, a little bit to know why he says this. Was he trying to prove himself here? Um, or is he really concerned that they not discredit the gospel, even if they have questions about his character? And uh, because there's a lot of times that your character and, and trust in the gospel are kind of connected. So I'm not sure if he's using the trustworthiness of the gospel to try to defend his character or if he's forgetting his character for a moment and saying, you've got to trust the gospel. Uh, but either way, Paul uh, preached a message that was not shifting, that was not... Um, you know, two-sided, two-faced. He says, you know, uh, the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but was yes to again. God's work does not contradict itself. It's uh, not an uncertain word. It's not God giving his word one minute and taking it back the next. God's word is absolutely reliable. In fact, he kind of deals with a sequence here. You see that God had made promises. And in Jesus, they are yes. In other words, Jesus fulfilled all the promises God made. That, that through Jesus, as God's instrument, we're able to experience the fulfillment of God's promises. And I don't believe there's any promises God God made that, that Jesus didn't fulfill. You know, all of them are fulfilled in Jesus. The apostles preached them. And uh, so how can they say yes to God and no to God's apostle? And the Corinthians had said they're amen. That is, the Corinthians, by obeying the gospel... And by being disciples of Christ, they had added their endorsement. They were committed to the same message, and God was glorified. That was kind of the sequence he used. So, the message is absolutely true and reliable. God made the promises, Jesus fulfilled them, the apostles preached them, the Corinthians said their amen, and God was glorified. And, and then God's work in his life guarantees the trustworthiness of what he says. He says, he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. God, What God has done in Paul guarantees his dependability, his trustworthiness, his integrity. You know, it's God's work in his life that's made him what he is. Um, there's a debate, I think, as to whether or not we should consider the us's to be Paul and the apostles or Paul and all the brethren. And I think you could take that either way. I'm taking it for the moment as being Paul and the apostles. That he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us as God who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge those things that all happened with Paul and the other apostles, it's confirmed their character, God using them, their integrity. But really, those things are true of us as well. God has done those things for us. So I don't know that it makes a great deal of difference which way you take those things. But, but Paul is at least looking at the gospel, whether saying the gospel is true, therefore I am, or saying whatever you think about me, the gospel is true. Uh, I think either way, the point is is valid. But I do consider that one of the more challenging sections uh, to to really see what he's saying here. Thoughts and comments on that? We may have a view. Yes. Uh, I think that in verse 22 is just to show, uh, again, the assuredness. Because if you think about what he pledges here, This is sure, this is sure, and, and, and 
Yeah, he will come back in chapter 5 and verse 5, and clearly talking about all of us, where he says, now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. And I think the idea is, the, the blessing of the Spirit that has been given to us is almost like the down payment. You know, what we've already received through the Spirit in Christ is kind of like the guarantee of, of the fact we'll get the rest of it. We've got the first installment through what the Spirit has blessed us with now, and that confirms for us that that we're going to receive the whole blessing one day. That, that's that kind of an idea. And so I agree, Paul is, is certainly indicating that there is uh, assurance, the pledge of the Spirit in our hearts gives us confidence that God will complete uh, the, the gift that he's going to give to us one day. Other thoughts? All right, 23 to 2-4. But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you, I did not come again to court. Not that we lorded over your faith, but our workers with you for your joy. For in your faith you are standing firm. But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad by the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have, especially for you. A really important section. I think we can get this, and wow, it is amazing, Paul's heart and attitude right here. So look at what he says. In 23 he says, I call God as witness to my soul. In other words, he's staking his very life before God on the truthfulness of what he's saying. I think that shows how important Paul believes it is to establish the reason why he made the change. You know, human beings would not be able to vouch for Paul's motivation to change the travel. Only Paul knew that as a Lord. So he calls God as witness. He's basically saying, may God take my life if I'm not telling you the truth. You know how much Paul respected the Lord? He absolutely wouldn't say that if he wasn't being totally sincere as to what the reason was. So I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you, I did not come again to court. He's being accused of being shifty and double dealing and dishonest. You can't trust him, you can't count on him. Paul said the reason he changed was to spare you. It was for their benefit. Basically, Paul felt like it would be better to write a strong letter of reproof that would hopefully bring them to repentance so that when he came on the visit it could be a pleasant, encouraging, positive visit. He thought that would be better for them. So he changed his plans because he was concerned about them and he wanted to have an encouraging time with them. It is so disappointing and so frustrating to make a change of plans like this for their benefit and have them call this into question and ridicule Paul and, and badmouth Paul, you can't even trust him, when his whole point was he was trying to spare them. Now when he says that, he hastens to clarify the way those false teachers try to misconstrue and twist everything he says, he better clarify this quickly, to spare them might give you the idea that he thought he was the boss or something. So he says, not that we lord it over your faith. No, no, I'm not trying to say that. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to control everything. But, but we are workers with you for your joy. Isn't that a wonderful definition of Christian service? Workers together with them for their joy. That's how Paul sees what he was doing. That's great. That's encouraging. In your faith, you're standing firm. So, Paul's not trying to be a boss. So when he said, spare them, he didn't mean like he was standing over, okay, I'm going to spare you. It wasn't like that. He didn't mean it in that tone. So, so he clarifies that. But he says, look, 
I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. That that second visit had evidently been a painful visit. It was a sorrowful visit, and he was determined he wasn't going to make a visit like that again if he could possibly avoid it. He said, if I cause you sorrow, who then makes you glad but the one who makes you sorrowful? I don't want to be the guy who's always getting on to you. I don't want to be the one who's always, every visit, it's like, you know, taking you out to the woodshed and, you know, verbally beating you up. That's not what Paul wanted. That wouldn't be helpful. This is the very thing I wrote to you. So that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice. Because I knew that what made me rejoice would make you rejoice. Do you see that idea? The idea is that, that Paul didn't want to sadden them again. He, he wanted them to be able to have joy and not grief at his coming, so he wrote them. He wrote them to rebuke them, to, to, to try to co- help them correct some problems. So that the visit could be encouraging. So that they could correct those because of the letter. And when he came, it would be joyful. He's confident that a, a good, encouraging visit will be as joyful for them as was what it will be for him. I mean, you know, he really made the change in travel plans for them and for himself. He realizes that for him too. He wants them to make him joyful. I mean, he depends on their encouragement, their love. Um, and so he paid them kind of by an epistolary visit instead. You know, he visited by letter first. Uh, you know, and it had been hard to write what he did. He said, out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. I mean, wow. Even what he wrote, it grieved him. He cried as he wrote it. It is so hard to rebuke people you love. It just it just tears you up to have to warn them and to have to correct them, to have to get after them. Paul didn't he didn't want to, but he loved them. And they needed to change. And he had to warn them. But it wasn't, you know. I mean, maybe maybe some of them got the idea. He just really likes to review people. You know, it's just a lot of fun for him to tell everybody where they're wrong. It wasn't like that for him. And he, he opens his heart up to it. I mean, to say, you know, out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. I mean, wow. That's pretty open. Say, I wrote you that letter, but I was crying as I wrote it. I don't know for, I don't know how men were in the first century, but you know men aren't supposed to cry. So you know, try to make sure your voice on the phone doesn't sound like you've got any crying in it, you know, and, and uh, you know, you feel embarrassed if somebody sees you cry. You know, because I don't know if it's like that for Paul or not, but but it was it's really open to say that. And he said, you know, not so that you would be made sorry, but that you might know the love which I have, especially. Paul loved him so much. And what you think about this? There's, there's just some excellent things to see in Paul's unselfish attitude. And, you know, it's hard for me to figure out how to explain and teach some of these concepts. But think about this. Paul was deeply grieved over their sins. Paul didn't just denounce their sins. They grieved him. They made him cry. Paul spoke frankly, but he spoke in love. You know, it's hard to touch the heart of other people if if something if it hasn't touched our heart. If if we're just cold and distant, and that was wrong, you shouldn't have done that. You know, I'm disappointed in you. You know, you're just, you're just unfeeling, it doesn't bother you. It's kind of mechanical. It's hard to make people feel the grief for their sin. It is much easier for them to grieve it when you grieve it. When you love them enough that it hurts you. But I want you to think about Paul's patience. If there is anything that impacts me about 2 Corinthians, 
it is the kind of thing I'm about to say. Paul had done all kinds of stuff in the Corinthians. He came to Corinth. Wasn't a tourist. Wasn't like Corinth was the Mecca city he just longed to go to. He was coming with the gospel. And there was a lot of opposition, but he stayed there for a year and a half. And he cared about the brethren. He taught them and he, he, he tried to build them up. And, and he read notes three times now, I believe, before this letter. And he'd come for another visit. And he'd worry about them. And he'd warn them and he cried over them and prayed for them. And he chose to delay his visit for their sake. And they accused him of being trustworthy, untrustworthy. How do you feel when you do everything for somebody? Then they're like, I just can't trust you. Wow. I mean, that is stabbing them. These are brethren he loves and has put himself out for. And they are so, they're so willing to believe the slander and the mudslinging of these intruders who come in against Paul, who they knew, who had lived, loved them and lived for them and brought them the gospel. Now, what do you do when somebody starts to reject you? They start to distance themselves. They start to be colder. They start to close off to you. What do you do? <coughs> Tell you what I do. I reject them back. I close off back. I push them away. Because it hurts so badly to continue to love and to care and to make yourself vulnerable when they're hurting you and when they're rejecting you. And Paul just loves them even more and opens up more and tells them how he probably wrote that letter and how much he did. Wow. I have not done that. That is a tremendous attitude. That is love. That is what Jesus does. You know, when we stray from him, he is the good shepherd to leave the 99 to go seek the one that had mistreated him. Because he loves. And those of us who receive the unselfish, unmerited love of God should love one another when they are stabbing us in the back, and when they're hurting us, and when they're closing off, and when they're distancing themselves. And we'll see this over and over again in this letter. And it'll make us uncomfortable. We've got a conscience. Because Paul just pursues him. He opens his heart even more and he says, I love you so much. Please open your heart to me. Wow. I think this is a great, great passage. And at the beginning of several passages like this. That's the best I can do with that. Thoughts and comments. Amen. Yeah, I mean, is there a list of virtues in the New Testament that love isn't the first or the last or the, the greatest or whatever? And there's just so much about that all through the New Testament that, I mean, Paul's a wonderful example. Here's what love means. We can talk about love, but here's love in action, and it's a lot more painful than what you might think about abstractly. Good point. Other thoughts and comments? This itself, 
I mean, that is what you deny yourself. Yes. Amazing that Paul, you know, he, he knew some people not very well, and yet he didn't just have a sort of sterile affection for them. He really wasn't affectionate toward them and wanted them really to do well. And I think sometimes that's really hard. Some people it's easy to be, you really care about it in an easy kind of way, a natural kind of way, but it was much beyond that for him. He really had some deeper affection for, for all men. Yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I mean, he, I mean, his love was really constructive and edifying. He really cared about them. He wanted them to to do well. He cared about their their life before God. Yeah, very much. So. Very good thoughts. Eric. Maybe so. I don't know. I mean, he clearly wasn't lording over them. And, and I suppose if, you know, he was just trying to tell them off without the concern and care that he had, that might have been an example of that. So maybe so. Good questions. Other thoughts, questions? All right, in a second we're going to break. We've probably got enough people here to do this, though I do this every once in a while. It's kind of fun for us. Uh, I'd just like to figure out where we're from um, for a second. Uh, I'll even write that down. So, okay, we'll just do this by show of hands. So, uh, and you can kind of look around and get a feel for this. 